0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Exodus chapter three is where we're going to be today. I'm going to introduce this by essentially telling you that I have every intention this morning to fail at my task. Um, Exodus chapter three, especially as we're dealing with what our text this morning is a section of scripture that is so filled with glory and meaning that the greatest expositors and minds, theologians in the world have taken cracks at it and every single one of them to their success has failed utterly. This morning, when we come to this brief section of Scripture, the statement that is to say God's giving of His divine name, communicated in this divine name, is the very essence of our God. And I am not going to pretend for a moment that in one hour, I will be able to exposit the glory of the divine essence of our God. And anyone who would come to you and tell you that in but a small period of time, they will be able to convey to you the pure in all all of the glory, the excellencies of our God. They are a liar, or they have such a feeble God that he can be exposited in a mere hour." That is not what we are aiming to do today. My intention is to come and lay out to you what I am convinced is communicated in the giving of the divine name, that is to say I am that I am and in doing so hopefully what we will find is the transcendence, the inexhaustibility of our God and at the very same time place us in our position, our appropriate position before him. That he is God and that we are not. That he is creator and that we are mere creature and in light of this we might have a refreshed desire to To worship Him, to stand in the grandeur of His existence, knowing who we are in the light of that existence, and gladly profess that He is God and that we are not, that He is due all worship, praise, glory, and adoration, and that we are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I come again confessing that I will fail utterly in this task as we aim to exposit and to lay out the beauty of our God, that no mere man has ever done so with perfection, nor will he. On my shelf are tomes and tomes and tomes of men who have done everything they can to explore the beauty of our God, and that every single one of them died looking forward to to, to seeing it fully exposited as they entered into paradise." And so my hope this morning is to lay these things out to you, not sufficiently, but hopefully in truth, and that in our apprehension of it, we might worship with renewed vigor. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter three, starting in verse 13 and making our way to the end of the chapter. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter three, starting in verse 13, says this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God." But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, Lord, I pray that you would make this failure a success. Lord, that it might be a means of grace to your people to behold the Godhood of God. Lord, we think of you far too often like you are one of us. You are not like us. You are infinitely higher. Your wisdom is greater. Your power and scales we cannot begin to fathom. And so, Father, would you help us to see how big you are? Would you help us to see your splendor? Would you help us to see your glory? And Lord, as we do so, may we worship appropriately. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. The first thing that I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to walk you through the narrative and essentially land us at the giving of the divine name and why I believe that it is given in this particular moment of redemptive history. So to begin, the first thing that we want to do is simply observe what's taking place in the narrative So if we notice Exodus 3.13, Moses essentially makes a request to God asking for the divine name, asking for the name of the one who is going to send him. And the reason this is so important is because as you're entering back into Egypt, it is not as though there are not other people that are called lowercase g gods. And so as Moses would make his way back into Egypt, proclaiming that God is going to deliver, it is not a surprise that he would want to go with the name that is the primary identifier of the God who is delivering delivering the people of Israel. And so it's essentially answering the question as the Israelites would ask Moses, who ultimately is it that's sending you? And so Moses asked for the divine name and he's asking so that as he's entering back into Egypt to convey to the Israelites, he can give them the particular name that is the name proper of the God who is sending him and thus carrying the unique authority that is associated with that name. But secondly, it's important for us to note the reason this divine name is given is because it answers the question, who is making these promises? And I think we can all affirm that a promise is really only sufficient or only its value is ultimately placed in the one who has given it. For instance, when a liar gives you a promise, you're not really concerned that the promise is going to come to fruition. You're pretty convinced that the individual is a liar and therefore the promise is not going to come. But when the God of infinite glory promises, then all of a sudden, there's a unique confidence that we are able to take in that. And so the promises are given, so by whose name is this promise given? And then thirdly, by what power will these promises be delivered? You see, it's rather foolish to make a promise if there is not power and authority to ultimately deliver on the promise that was given. And so if a weak man offers you a promise, but you know for certain that he does not have the power and authority to deliver on that promise, you are relatively confident that the promise will not come to fruition. And so as God gives the divine name to Moses, he is essentially telling them that it is by this name that I promise the unchangeable perfect God offers you this promise. And then secondarily, it is the all sufficient, the omnipotent God who offers you this promise. And it is by his power that he will deliver. And so God makes his name known after Moses makes the request and essentially answers the question, who is sending, who is promising, and then ultimately, by whose power will all of these promises come to fruition? And then God in his grace, and I do want us to note that it is by his grace that he condescends and grants us the divine name, that grants us... Any form of revelation about who he is, as we have already read in Matthew this morning, apart from God giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, it would be a total impossibility for us to comprehend in any form the incomprehensible God. In every sense that we know him, we must understand that we know him based upon his gracious revelation of himself. He dwells in unapproachable light, as it were. And yet the people of God say, I know the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Not only do I know him, I have fellowship with him. How is it that we can make such bold proclamations? It is not because our eyes are so powerful or our ears so perfect to comprehend the God who speaks in the ways that he does. Instead, it is because he has given us this revelation that he makes himself known. And as he makes himself known, he makes the creature capable of comprehending. And so we see that he has made himself known, he gives his divine name, and he does so all of his infinite grace to condescend to mere creatures. And then at the very same moment, God gives Moses what he is to say and ultimately promises that he will deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt yet again. Notice in Exodus three sixteen and 17, it says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the land, out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, that the promises of God are being delivered in this very same discourse. The divine name is given, the promises are given, and ultimately the means by which he will deliver, that is to say his power, are all being laid bare before Moses, and so as this, as this conversation unfolds, we have the divine name being given, we have promises being, being given specifically to not only Moses, but also to the people of Israel, and then he demonstrates the power in which this will be accomplished. Notice what it says in verse 19 and 20. It says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go... I think that the King James actually renders this much better, and I think the better reading of it is this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go even by a mighty hand, that is to say that there is no hand that is mighty enough to deliver you from the people of Egypt. There's no hand that's going to be strong enough to bring you out of slavery, much less bring you out of slavery while plundering the Egyptian people and bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and that is why verse 20 hits so hard, so I will stretch out my hand. He is is essentially making a comparison to say that there is not a single hand upon the earth. The mightiest of men can come and aim to deliver you from the hand of the Egyptians and they will fail, but I will stretch out my hand. That there is a distinction between the mightiest in the land and the creator God. And it is by this name, by this promise, and by this power that the people of God will ultimately be delivered. And that is what is being so clearly stated in this brief conversation that takes place between Moses and the angel of the Lord who is dwelling in the burning bush. Now, that leads us to ask the question, why can we believe this God? Because I've already said, if we don't, if someone's offering us a promise, but they are not trustworthy, or they are subject to change, then then that's really a problem because I can think of many promises that I have made, promises that I have made with really good intentions that I have failed to keep because I simply changed from the time that I gave the promise and the time that the promise was to be executed. And I can also think of multiple occurrences where I promised something not realizing that I did not have the authority or power or perhaps it is particular providence has kept me from fulfilling it. That is to say that I am a mere creature. How can I truly deliver on each and every one of my promises? How can I be faithful to my word with perfection? And the reality is, saints, that no single man can be perfectly faithful to his promises because we change, and then secondarily, because we do not have the necessary power to deliver on at bare minimum half the promises that we make. There's a reason we say, if the Lord wills. And as we come to this, the, the reality is that the divine name is not simply given here so that we can know his name, but it's also given that there might be great confidence in the promises and the power of the God who given this wonderful name. And so let's look at verse 14 and see the giving, shall we? We'll start at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am, has sent me. We refer to this as the divine name. That is the giving. And it is not just a name, it is revelation, and it should be considered as such. And so what is the divine name? The divine name in essence is the simple phrase, I am that I am. It's a statement of self-being, which we will deal with here in a moment. In our modern vernacular, the best way to pronounce it has been debated for years and will continue to be debated. The way that we often hear it spoken of is Yahweh or Jehovah. And as we look at the pages of scripture, you will notice that the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is meant to reference this divine name, that when God makes promises, that when God delivers by his power, it is by this name, that he chooses to be recognized. And so the primary purpose of the giving of the divine name is to distinguish the living true God from all others. And this name is the name that should be remembered throughout all generations. Exodus 3.15 goes on to say this, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, again, that divine name, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I want us to hold on to that verse until a little bit later in our sermon. Secondly, it is not just to make a distinction in a proper name sense between the lesser gods, these fallen, wicked things that are represented by false gods like Ra and the like in Egypt, But the true God, the living God, the eternal God, is not just distinguished from all of these lesser deities that we see represented throughout the the narrative of Exodus, but instead there is a uniqueness about him in nature, a very godness, as it were, of our God. And that is to say that the divine name represents more than just a proper noun, but instead recognizes and communicates to us his very nature. The reason this is so important is because as we understand our God, we must never take away from Him His Godhood. And I'm convinced of this, that we spend far more time thinking of God like a bigger, better one of us than we think of Him as the true God who is transcendent, who is not like us at all. And if we grasp this appropriately, hear me, if we grasp this appropriately, then it, 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 it. gives such fuel to the fires of Christian worship. And not only does it give such fuel to fires of worship, it provides unique confidence because we are not depending on one who is like us. We are depending on one who is totally other, that there is no one like him. And that provides the utmost confidence. And so the divine name is given to distinguish from all others, first in the fact that it is a proper name. But secondly, and most importantly, is that the divine name communicates attributes of God that are exclusive to him, meaning that. They cannot be given to anyone else. No one can claim this. The second most powerful being in all of existence cannot claim the nature of God. They were created. They were feeble. They are frail. When when you place them before the infinite, unchangeable God, we see them as weak. No, the divine essence is exclusive to God. And that leads us to ask the question, what does the divine name ultimately teach us about the very essence and being of our God? And I want to give you three things, and this is what we'll spend the majority of our time on this morning. First, it teaches us of his eternality by being the I am, that is noting perfect existence, which we'll deal with in a moment. It teaches us of his sufficiency, of his self-sufficiency, or a big word, a actually a small word with a big meaning. It teaches us of his self-sufficiency or his aseity. That is to say that his being is ultimately in his being. It is not dependent or contingent upon anything else in existence. He is, his being is based in himself. And lastly, it teaches us of his immutability, his inability to change by the fact that he is the I am, not the I was or I will be. He is forever the I am. This statement is as true about the divine essence if it was said in eternity past as it will be said in eternity future. There is no subject to change in him whatsoever. And so let's look at these really quickly. First, what does it mean when we say God possesses eternality? We speak often, as we should as Christians, of eternal life. But as we speak of eternal life, we must not confuse the reality that the Christian who has been born again, bought by the finished work of Jesus Christ, that will dwell forever with him in heaven, that they live in eternal life. But we must not mistake that or confuse it with the eternality of God. Because the reality is we do have eternal life based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ. but we must understand and pay special attention to the fact that every single creature has beginning there is a moment where they were not and god calls them into existence and they become something We must note that perfect eternality, perfect Godhood, as it were, cannot have either beginning of days nor end of days. I want you to notice the simple phrase that we find in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the loudest and largest presupposition that we find in all of sacred scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Does it not simply assume the existence of God? It is no surprise that it assumes the existence of God, for nothing can be if he does not not exist. There is no creation. There is no material world if there is not a self sufficient being to create every bit of it. There's an old Latin term, ex nihil nihil fit, from nothing comes nothing. There is nothing more foolish than to say that everything that exists came from nothing. No, we profess. That everything that exists comes from one who is eternal and transcendent, who has his very being and essence in and of himself. When we when we read Genesis 1:1, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, and we believe it, we are professing that there is a God who is eternal, that has no beginning of days, nor will he have end of days. John 1 introduces essentially this very same thing and applies it not only to the Father, but also to the Son. In John 1.1 it says, In the beginning. Was the Word. AW Pink makes a beautiful argument in saying that when we read John 1 1, it's not in the beginning looking back to Genesis 1.1. Instead, it is a reference to in beginning. He is essentially aiming to push back beginning as far as it can go. He's not anchoring it in creation. He's looking even past creation, into eternity past, and saying, in this beginning, in the beginning of beginnings, in the beginnings that we cannot even speak of was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. This means that everything, hear me, everything that was made came from the hand of the divine. That is to indicate to us that he is not a made being. He is the maker, never to be confused with one who was created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, concludes John 1.1. But not only do we find this so loudly at the beginning of the Scriptures, we also find it on a refrain at the conclusion of them. When we speak of God's eternality, we speak and gladly profess that He has no beginning, that He has a perfect existence but Revelation shouts this to us, makes certain we cannot confuse the end with a finite being. Revelation 1.9 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The introduction of the conclusion, if you will, of the book of, of, the, of our Bible is a statement essentially that God is the eternal being. Revelation one six goes on and, it's, and he says to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22.13 says this, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It is so explicit throughout the pages of scripture that our God has a perfect existence, that there is no beginning of days, there is no end of days. There is none like him, saints, which is the intended purpose of this. He has perfect being. Every single one of us know that at one point we were not, but we must gladly profess that that is a part of being a creature. It is a distinction between the creator who has no beginning nor end and the creature. And so we say that he is the eternal one, having no beginning of days nor end of days, that he is altogether unique in his existence. There is indeed none like him. It is the reason that we profess that he is the ancient of days that leads us to ask a rather simple question how is it that he is the eternal one I mean I think that every single one of us perhaps has been plagued by the question either we asked it when we were four years old or we have been asked it when our children were four years old which is the simple question of where does God come from then isn't it interesting that the question itself notes the uniqueness of God that even our children understand that there must be something that is transcendent. There must be one who is over, who is more powerful than all of the things that exist here. The reason they ask this question is because they presume that there is one who is infinite and eternal. And as they ask this question, we should never once cower and say, oh, it's a very difficult situation. It's rather really not a difficult situation. He has his being in himself. His existence is dependent upon no other. He is, he is the I am. And so, what does this ultimately mean? How is he the eternal, altogether eternal God? He is the eternal God because he is self sufficient. That is to say, that he is not dependent upon anyone else for his existence. When we speak of this, it's rather difficult for us because we are so uniquely dependent that literally in this very moment, if the oxygen was sucked out of this room, we would instantly all cease to exist. We would draw our last breath and we would perish. But God is not like us. He is not dependent on anything outside of himself. His being is in himself. It is the reason that he makes the statement as he gives the divine name, I am that I am. So how do we understand this term this self-sufficiency or aseity? It means that he has all that is necessary to him in himself and has from everlasting. From everlasting he has had life in himself. From everlasting he has been the self-sufficient God. John 5:26 says it this way, "For as the Father has life in himself, He does not derive it from anywhere else. Every single creature derives their life from another, We derive our lives from our parents. Our parents derive their lives from their parents before them. But we can all say with absolute confidence that our very existence is dependent upon one who is transcendent. The reason there is any being, the reason there is any life here is because the father has life in himself, that he is the one who is self-sufficient and all other being must find their being in him. So what then does this mean for him? It means that he is independent of all. Nothing created him. Isaiah forty three ten says it this way. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Let no one tell you that Isaiah forty three ten is communicating that this God that we speak of was formed. It is communicating that there is no way that a God can be formed. A God who is formed is very clearly indicative of the fact that he is no God at all. Any true God is self-existence is eternal Isaiah 44 6 says this I am the first and the last besides me there is no God you notice that the clear profession of the divine name the clear profession of eternality and self-sufficiency is that if anyone claims to be God he must bear these attributes he must bear eternality he must bear self-sufficiency and if he does not have these he can no more be called a God than an ant can he needs nothing to sustain him. Isaiah 40, 28, "'Have you not known, have you not heard?' the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He, his understanding is unsearchable, that there is not a moment in this God where he is dependent upon anything else for a refueling of his being in essence. When we look at Genesis and the creation account, friends, we must remember that the seventh day was not a seventh day given to us or given because God was a bit fatigued from his creation of all things. No, he was not resting for himself. He was giving his people a gift. That is, is to say that we are to rest on the seventh day. No, he does not grow tired. He does not grow weary because he needs nothing to sustain him. He has all that he needs in and of himself. A.W. Tozer beautifully put it, need is a creature word. The creator knows nothing of it. That in a brief moment, I can go from full strength to fatigue, but God is always the omnipotent God. He always possesses all that he is, and it is never diminished. And so he is the Self-sufficient God. He is the one who's de- whose being, whose existence is dependent upon no other but himself. But this also means something for us. It means that all other things, all other beings must have their beings first and foremost in him. Stephen Charnock says it this way. What has life in itself has life without bounds and can never desert it, nor be deprived of it, so that he lives necessarily, and it is absolutely impossible that he should not live, whereas all other things live and move and have their being in him, as Acts 17, 28 says, and as they live by his will, so they can return to nothing at his mere word. You notice the distinction, don't you? And I'll tell you, like, the intention is to show that we are not like him, that his very being in essence is in and of himself, there is not a world where he cannot be. But in a mere moment, every single one of us by his mere word could cease. He is eternal and we are temporal, meaning that he has no beginning nor end of days, but there is a feasible world in which we were never created and the world continues to spin. The world continues to function because the world is not dependent upon us. The very being of every single individual is not dependent on mere creatures. The being of every individual is dependent upon God who is eternally self-sufficient. All being flows from his very nature. He is eternal and we are temporal. He has existence in himself and we are wholly dependent upon him for our existence. He gives us, as it were, our daily bread. He is the reason that our atoms continue to hold together and at his mere word, we can cease, but there is no way in, all of, in, in any and all possibilities that he can ever not be. If he ceases to be, the very universe that we live in unravels. For scripture is quite clear that it is by his word that he upholds the universe He cannot not be, and we can cease to be in a moment. And so we must note of his self-sufficiency, his aseity, as it were, that his being is in and of himself. When he says, I am that I am, he is essentially saying that my being, my existence is dependent upon no other. I am because I am. I have life because I am life. Now that leads us to, I think, one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture. When I tell you it's the most beautiful, there is no doctrine that has that has. Latched hold of me about the being of our God than this one. Because all of this, the eternality of God, the self sufficiency of God, ultimately lead us to a simple conclusion. And that is to say that God is immutable. He is unchangeable. I am that I am. When he says this in eternity past, he is the very same I am who says it from the burning bush. When he says I am that I am, he is the very same I am from the burning bush to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. In eternity future, when we have dwelled there for millions and millions of years, the I am that is speaking to us in that glorious, wonderful place is the very same unchanged I am that we read about that predestined us for adoptions from before the world began. He changes not. And as we understand this, I will tell you that if we do not have an unchangeable God, then we have no hope. We have no hope whatsoever. If he is subject to change and alteration, then brothers and sisters, the reality is the promises that he gave in Christ could have already changed and we are simply preaching something that bears no weight whatsoever. But beloved, he is the unchangeable, immutable God. When we speak of his eternality and his self-sufficiency, it assumes the fact that there is nothing that will alter his person or being, for, it can, for if it can alter his person and being, then he is not eternal. And if he can be affected by things outside of himself, then he is not the self-sufficient God. And so we rest upon these two foundations for not just our worship of him, but for our existence here below, for the confidence that we, we may have. So what does it mean that God is immutable? That is to say that He is unchanged and He is unchangeable, that He is static in nature. First, God is immutable in His very being and essence, meaning unlike us, God never changed from nothing to something. The greatest change that any individual experiences is the moment that they go from nothing to something. Every single one of us, though we do not remember it, has had this very experience, Where our very being, our very essence did not exist, God caused it to exist. This is the greatest and grandest of changes and every single thing that that is made has experienced this fundamental change. God has never changed from nothing to something. He has always been something. Further, the something that he is has never been altered. Now you ask, where can we get a text that would argue this? Malachi 3.6 is rather explicit. I am the Lord I do not change. There's very little theology in that passage. Actually, it's just pretty clear English. I do not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And James 1.17 carries this forward into the New Testament. And he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Why can we have confidence that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights? Because in him there is no variation or shadow of change. In him is perfection. When he gives good gifts, we know that his goodness is eternal goodness. It is not as though he shall hand us a snake. His good gifts flow from his perfect nature and essence. His being has never changed. It will never change. Now, this also means that God being immutable in his being means that he is immutable in his attributes. Just for a moment to give a brief point of clarity We are so prone to break God into pieces because we are broken up into pieces. God is not broken up into pieces. God is all that he is all of the time, which means that when we're speaking of the love of God, most certainly we're speaking of the ways in which we see it and behold it, but we must understand that when God acts, he is pure act, That he is motivated by his very being, his very essence. And so most certainly we say that God is love and we do so without any exemption. We gladheartedly profess this. But when we see God and we argue that he does not change, it means that his attributes, that the things that we rejoice in, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his glory, all of these things are never subject to change nor alteration. A.W. Pink beautifully puts it this way, whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they are precisely the same now and will remain so forever. Necessarily so for they are, very, they are the very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. Semper Edom, always the same, is written across every one of them. His power unabated, his wisdom undiminished, his holiness unsullied. The attributes can no more change than deity can cease to be. And you ask, why would this comfort? And the reason that we often confuse the glory of God and his perfections with with, with the growth of man, because we think, ah, we want men to grow and be better, do we not? We preach and gladheartedly so the doctrine of sanctification. We want good, faithful men to grow up in the Lord, to grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. We want them to mature. We want them to be made better. But hear me, saints, perfection cannot be improved upon. Love has always been perfect love in Him. Grace has always been perfect grace in Him. Mercy has always been perfect mercy in Him. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that we do not want improvement or anything to affect our God. He has eternally been the perfect one. No alteration, no change. Please, if there is change, then we are of all men to be most fearful. No, Second, thirdly, we must note this, this very clear point, that God's acting is not, God's acting is not an alteration of his attributes, but an expression of them. Creation didn't change God into a creator. We call him the creator God because of who he is. We call him that, we recognize him that, not first and foremost because of what he has done, but because of his very essence and being. He did not become a creator, he always was a creator. The fall did not change God into a just God. God has always been a perfectly holy and just God. As we read the narrative of Adam falling, we do not look there and say, oh, look, God became just. No, God is expressing his perfect attributes. He is eternally just. God making covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not make God a covenant faithful God. It was a demonstration of the fact that he was the covenant faithful God. Not only that, we go further, and one that I think that we often misunderstand. The coming of Christ did not make God loving, merciful, and gracious. The coming of Christ was a demonstration of God's merciful, loving, and gracious nature. If you would like to argue for a moment that God became merciful, loving, and gracious in Christ, you must ask the question, why did he come in the first place? He came in the first place because God is the eternal loving God. He has always been loving, merciful, and gracious. And this is not subject to, to change. He is the I am yesterday, today, and forever. There is no alteration nor shadow of change in him. And if there were, we above all men should live in infinite fear. Because could we trust if he is the changeable God? Can we trust that the sun will rise tomorrow? The very laws of this are based in his essence and being. He is the one who set these laws into motion. What is to keep us from, or what is to keep gravity from totally altering its laws and not cause us to stay on the earth, but to launch us into the atmosphere? It is based upon the fact that he is immutable. The reason that we trust the laws of nature is because we know the God who wrote them. Further, could we trust the covenant promises of a God who changes There is a long journey between Moses being given the promise and him making his way to Egypt. What keeps Moses confident as he leaves the conversation with the burning bush, makes his way to have a conversation with his father-in-law, and then arrives in Egypt? What is the ground of his confidence? Is that the God who gave me this promise will not change in the time it takes for me to get from this bush back to Egypt you understand that our profession as Christians is that God has not changed from the day of Jesus' resurrection to today. We're not talking about a brief momentary journey. We're talking about 2,000 years. Hear me, saints, you believe that the God of the scriptures has not changed since he accepted the finished work of Christ. And we continue to profess that. And you believe that when you stand on the day of judgment at the very same way that he accepted the, resur- the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago, he will still accept on your last day. You believe that in eternity, that throughout eternity, ways that we cannot describe that the God who accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ in eternity, that that acceptance, that perfect sacrifice will still stand? If we do not have an immutable God, we have no hope. We have no hope, but praise be to him The I am is eternally the I am. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, when the promise was made that if you believe on him, then you will be saved and you will be saved to the uttermost, that promise remains the same because the God who made it is the very same God he was when he said it as he is to this very day and will be throughout all eternity. His love cannot be lost or changed because it has neither beginning nor end. The promises that he has made are anchored in his very essence and being. And that being the case, we are the the most confident people on the planet because we say, not that we don't change, but the God who is has never changed. And my whole life, every bit of my existence is dependent upon not my own understanding, but on our God who is the great I am. Thus, we must simply pause to adore. Every time I start a journal, I write out my sermon notes by pen. And at the beginning of every single one of them, I write a rather simple phrase. I will not be the same man when I finish this than when I began. You understand that you aren't the same as you were this morning. You woke up different than you are now. We are not the same as we were moments ago. But the confidence is not that I will remain the same, I don't want to remain the same. The presupposition as I write that is not that I will be worse but that God in his grace will sanctify and conform me more deeply into the image of Christ. But my other profession in that is that I will not be the same man when I finish this journal but you will be the same God The confidence that we have is not in self. It's not even in our apprehension of God. It is in the static, immutable nature of our God that he changes not. The word changes not because the God of the word doesn't change. Men have been preaching the same passage for thousands of years It hasn't changed one iota. He has always been the God who is the I am. Men have professed the gospel for 2,000 plus years in fullness and have been doing so before that even into the pages of the Old Testament. The gospel has not changed one bit. And we rejoice in the fact we come adoring because it is the God of the gospel who doesn't change. It is the God of the word who does not change. You would be a fool to build your life upon anything else. If we build it here, then we know that it is a firm, immutable foundation that is not subject to change because the one who laid it is without subject to change. He has laid a perfect foundation for us. And so we gladly profess, I change, he does not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reason I have confidence in the gospel is because the gospel that he gave, he gave as the unchangeable, immutable God. The reason I have confidence that the sun will rise the same as it did today is because he is the unchangeable God. The reason that I will stand before God on the day of judgment without fear and trembling is because he is the same yesterday, today, today and forever. The blood of Christ that was sufficient 2,000 2000 years ago is sufficient today because he is unchanging. The blood of Christ that is sufficient to this very day will be sufficient throughout all of eternity. He is the eternal I am. Shortly put, a sayety that is self-sufficiency, immutability, and eternality are qualities that can only, can only and exclusively be applied to the divine being. You see how transcendent, don't you? That we are not like him. And the reason I want to lay this case before us is because I want Philippians 2 to be sweet. Listen to what Philippians 2 says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that is to say he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. I want to make a special note here. That phrase, but emptied himself, is not a emptying out of the attributes that we have just discussed. The eternal son is always the eternal son. He is immutable, unchangeable, the very same way that the father is. Because listen to Colossians 119 through 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, we must understand how far he condescended. He is not like us and yet we say that he is like us in every way yet without sin. That this infinite, eternal, self-sufficient, immutable God took on human flesh and condescended to dwell with us so that we might be reconciled to him through his finished work. And I wanna make this really clear because it, it is easy for some to assault the divinity of our Lord a saying that he never directly claimed to be God. I would like to give you just for a moment the very things that the Lord Jesus Christ claimed. I want you to just, just pay attention again, echoing back to Exodus 3.15. Notice what this text says. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We can assume, can't we, safely, that Jesus read Exodus 3? If we can assume, and I think we can assume appropriately that Jesus read Exodus 3, I am convinced that it is the eternal son who echoed these words in the first place, but nonetheless, in Exodus 3.15, it's quite clear that he says that I am, this is the name, this is the name that you will use to remember me throughout all generations. It is so interesting then that in Jesus, having an absolute comprehension of the uniqueness of the divine name would enter into a conversation and as he is having this conversation in John 8, 58 through 59, he says this, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham, Abraham was, I am. Ego I me. The very same structure that we have in the giving of the divine name in Exodus 3.15. And you would say, ah, this is not a direct claim. He's simply saying that he was. What does it mean that he was? He was before Abraham? Is this not first and foremost an expression of his eternality? Don't misunderstand for a moment. Those who were in the hearing knew exactly what he was saying, and we know that they knew exactly what he was saying, because in verse 59 it says this, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why are they picking up stones if he's simply saying, I am? That is, to say that I am currently here. What he is arguing in this brief moment is saying that the divine name that I read about in Exodus 3, it belongs to me. It's my name. I am the eternal, all-sufficient, immutable God. And I have every right to the name that I read in Exodus 3 because the second person of the Godhead is the one who uttered it in the first place. He is simply claiming that which he has already given. He is the eternal I am. And if that is not sufficient, we must also argue that the very incommunicable nature of godhood that is to say aseity immutability and etern- eternality is all publicly and clearly claimed by the pages of the new testament concerning jesus jesus says he is the beginning and the end possessing true eternality revelation 22 13, it is the lord jesus christ who says behold i am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Well, where did he come from? John 17, 5 says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ is not temporal. He is the eternal second person of the Godhead who was with the Father in eternity past as God. Further, Jesus Jesus is recognized as the unchangeable one. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8 makes this abundantly clear to us. When we are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are resting upon the premise that he will not change either. That the mediator, the perfect mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, will not change. That the day that he sat down to intercede for us, he will press on in that endeavor, pleading the perfect finished work that he accomplished. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We must gladly say with John, who shouts it loudly to us, that Jesus is the great I am. That as we see this divine name being given, the promise and the power is not anchored in some lesser deity. It is anchored in the true living God. God, that as the promise is made and as the power is displayed, we say by this power, we are confident that he is able to deliver. And because he, the one who is unchangeable throughout time and space has promised, we know that all of his promises will come to fruition. And so we say that Jesus most certainly is the great I am that we see spoken of in Exodus chapter three. Now, I want to give you a few applications to this. First, we must be humbled in the light of his supremacy and to see our smallness. There is great worship in seeing how small we are. I, I, just, just to confess to you, there were multiple times in my study this week as I was working through this where I was just awestruck at how incredibly vaporous I am. That the reality is that in a moment, my life can be taken from me. That's not the anchor point of my confidence. The anchor point of my confidence is not that I will remain, not that you will remain, not that the ones who you love dearest will remain, but that the God who is eternal is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 8, one, I think is the echo point of this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why is it, saints, that this infinitely transcendent God knows your name? And I do not mean in his omniscience. I mean, like, when I'm speaking of the church of God, he knows your name. The John 10 sense of he knows your name. He knows your name with great affection and intimacy attached to it. Why does he have regard for you? Because he is the infinitely loving God. And so we say that we are small and that he is grand, and we rejoice in that. Secondly, immutability provides comfort and confidence. How could Moses and the elders of Israel trust the promises of God, Exodus 3:16 and 17, to go back somewhat to the introduction? I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. How can Moses and the elders of Israel be confident that these promises will come to fruition? How could they be confident? How could Joshua and Caleb stand in the wilderness on the 39th year believing that God will bring them into that land? Because he changes not. He is the same yesterday, today and forever that he has made the promise and not only has he made the promise, he has already made it explicitly clear to Joshua and Caleb that they will enter into the land and as they stand there in the 39th year wondering perhaps will they enter in, I am convinced faith did not falter in those men. Instead, they trusted the reality that their God changes not. They believe the I am. How can we trust the promises of God and have confidence that Christ's work will remain sufficient to this very day? Because he changes not. The promises that he gave, the promises that are given in the pages of the New Testament are not promises that have an expiration date. Instead, they are promises that extend on into eternity because our God changes not. And because he changes not, we have a firm footing for the soul. Eternality and self-sufficiency remind us that there is none like him. God has told Moses that Pharaoh will not let them go even by a mighty hand. Exodus 3, 19 through 20 again, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. How can Moses believe that God will ultimately deliver? He believes that God will ultimately deliver because he knows that this is the self-sufficient God who possesses perfect power, We are looking at the clear statement of no mighty hand will deliver you intended to lay out the clear contrast that it will take something greater, something grander, something infinitely more potent. And what he clearly lays out to us is it is not the mere hands of men, even the mightiest hands of men that will be able to deliver, but it is the self-sufficient God who will deliver the people out of Egypt. How is it then that the man Christ Jesus can deliver from sin and death in but the course of three hours? Have you asked this question before? I mean, we confess, do we not, an eternal hell? I deny annihilationism outright as a heresy. The reality is that any individual who has not repented and believed the gospel will drink the cup of God's wrath for eternity. That part of the consequence is the eternality of it. At the very same way then, I must confess that what Jesus drank on the cross was an eternal amount of wrath for each and every individual that he has redeemed. To play this out for you, we get to the pages of Revelation and we understand this is a multitude without number, myriads of myriads. And in three hours, three, three hours of darkness, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for each and every one of his elect. How? I mean, sincerely, how? How? How is it that anyone can do this? Well, for the one who possesses eternity, he is able. You see, we do not argue for the divinity of Christ simply because it is a hobby horse. We argue for the divinity of Christ first and foremost because it's true, but secondarily, if he is not the great I am, if he is not the eternal self-sufficient of God, then we can say with absolute confidence it is an impossibility that he would be able to drink an eternal amount of wrath in three hours, much less for a multitude without number. The reason that we can have any confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ is because he is the great I am. And if he is not the great I am, if he is not the eternal one, then there is no reason for us to believe that he was sufficient to drink the cup of God's wrath for a multitude without number. We confess that Jesus drank eternity, eternal condemnation in but a brief three hours. Do you understand the folly of that? It's only folly if we are not looking at the one who is truly God and truly man? As we look at the one who is truly God, we say eternity is in his hands. He most certainly can drink the cup of God's wrath in three hours. He could theoretically have drank it in one. Eternity belongs to him. And as eternity belongs to him, then we confess that we have great confidence that not only did he drink the cup of God's wrath for me in three hours, but he drank it for all of the church of God, the church which he bought with his blood. With that, I must simply say that I understand that if I communicated everything I desired to communicate perfectly, which I most certainly did not, and if you grasped everything that I have said perfectly, then we have still not scratched the surface of the divine nature. He is not like us. And I will gladly confess failure, and I am not particularly ashamed of my failure. He is infinite, He is self-sufficient, He is immutable, and He is inexhaustible. Should I be able to exposit all of his excellencies in but an hour, I would be ashamed to call him the I am. And so what is the response? Oftentimes we think of sermons and we ask, well, how then am I to respond? And oftentimes we have, here's something that we need to do or here's something that you need to think. I will tell you that the simple response to this is just adoration. It's just adoration that he is God and that we are not, that he is the self-sufficient one, that all being finds its being in him that He is eternal, not not having beginning of days nor end of days, that He is unlike us all together, the unchangeable God, of which we place all of our confidence and hope. The only appropriate response to standing before divinity is confession. Confession that He is God and that we are not. Confession that He is creator and that we are creature. Confession that He is eternal and that we are temporary. Confession that He is the immutable, unchangeable God and we have changed a thousand times since this morning. And so we simply bow before God with all of the saints throughout time and space and simply profess that he is the great I am and that is our ground of confidence and hope. Let's pray together.